The day has passed when armies on the ground or navies on the sea can be the arbiter of a nation's destiny in war. The main power of defense and the power of initiative against an enemy has passed to the air. Brigadier General William Billy Mitchell, Chief of Air Service, 1st Army, AEF, November 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 91, Wings Over the Meuse. So it's been about a minute, hasn't it? Uh, happy to be back here doing this in narrative form. This is, of course, what the podcast is really about. Uh, I've been out for a while because of family, but it's been for good family things. Um, so um, it's been busy. Um, but it's been good, but busy things, um, or busy, but good things, however you want to look at it. Both are good. Um, there's also been tour prep going on in the form of research, route preparation by map, getting people in places to all sync up for the first week of July. Again, great, but rather busy stuff. There are some big things to talk about, but even bigger right now are shout outs to some folks who have made PayPal donations and Patreon signups. First up is Rick, who made an incredibly generous donation to the podcast. Rick learned of the BFWWP through Mr. Steve Schaffer of the Milwaukee County Historical Society, and he's been listening since. So, a hearty thanks to Mr. Schaffer as well. Thank you both, gentlemen. For the Patreon signups, we have Yella, Michelle, Pete, Matthew, and Paul. Thank you so much. As patrons on Patreon, you will be helping to financially support the podcast. As thanks, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as $1 per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. Many thanks to everyone who has donated, written a review, or written an email to ask a question, or just say they enjoy the podcast. And to Ninja Nerd Hugs, who wrote an iTunes review, 
Thanks. I do try to do my best to not be an a-hole. Sometimes I fail, as we all sometimes do, but I keep trying. Also to H. Matthews, I'm so glad you've enjoyed the French Army Talks and that you've learned a lot that goes straight to my educator's heart. Thank you so much. Okay, on to some announcements. So, I'm old enough to have learned to never say never. Like, I'll never do that again. When I do that, I usually find myself doing that very thing I said I'd never do again. I've learned to not say that and to know that life has you do many things again. Some pleasant and some not so pleasant. As some of you might remember, during the 2020 lockdown, I finished my master's degree in special education. As happy as I was to be done with that long trek and with little desire at the time to ever be a student again, I said nothing about never doing another postgraduate class again because I knew I could change my mind. And so I have. I have been accepted into the University of Birmingham's Distance Learning Masters in Military History, set to begin this coming fall of 2023. And by Birmingham, think Peaky Blinders, not Alabama. I have decided to be a student once again, but this one is the fun masters, if there can be such a thing. Listener Xavier, who's in the same program right now, told me it's challenging and hard work. I believe him and I'm expecting a fairly heavy workload coming at the end of this September. So where does this leave the podcast? To me, this now means I need to scramble and get the Merzargon series finally completed. Both out of necessity and because we are getting to the end of the story, I will just need to truncate the series into a few episodes after this one. Of course, at the end of this month, I'm also heading out to France again, so that squeezes things even further. I will give you the rest of the story of the Meurs Argonne, but in a necessarily shorter fashion. Once I again settle into the rhythm of school and a day job at the same time, I will work on getting out some supplemental episodes that will provide those details you have come to expect from the BFWWP. After the Meurs Argonne series is complete, the podcast may have to go dark for a little bit. Let's see what happens in the fall, though. So that's what is going on, folks. But enough of me now, and let's get to the skies over the AEF First Army front line. Like just about everything else in the United States military upon its entry into the First World War, the American Air Service was woefully unprepared for the titanic conflict raging overseas. The AAS was perhaps the most unprepared of all the branches and sub-branches of the armed forces. In April 1917, the nascent air arm of the U.S. military was known as the aviation section of the U.S. Army's Signal Corps. In his book, Hostile Skies, A Combat History of the American Air Service in World War I, author James Hudson wrote that, quote, 
On April 6, 1917, not a single air unit had been trained for warfare, end quote. The U.S. Army had two training fields for pilot training with 55 trainer aircraft, of which General John Pershing said 51 were obsolete and the other four were obsolescent. To cap off this sorry state of affairs was the fact that there were no Americans with any sort of experience of air combat. With everything else, however, the United States government ramped up its efforts dramatically to expand and create an effective air arm for its military. Major Benjamin D. Foloy, a senior aviation officer in Washington and head of a group of officers planning for the United States' aircraft needs, stated in May 1917 that the government would need to build 22,000 planes in just one year. It was a beautiful dream, but it was indeed just a dream. The U.S. would never get close to building that many planes, as its production capacity simply wasn't there. Civil military boards taking over the country's manufacturing power, while well-intentioned, just couldn't do it. Before long, the upper echelons of the American military machine realized that they'd have to attenuate their goals and focus on where they could achieve success. As time went on, areas of success were found to be the manufacturing of the Liberty aircraft engine, a V-12 motor capable of 400 horsepower, the building of trainer planes for the expanding training fields, and the manufacturing of the British de Havilland DH-4 observation and bomber airplane. To multiply the successes, the DH-4 Liberty, as the Americans would call it, would be powered by the Liberty engine. The Americans would need to buy Allied planes as they could, and American pilots would be trained by Allied instructors in Great Britain, France, and Italy. It was the best the Americans could do in this situation. The air arm of the military steadily began to gel over the next year, to the point where in May 1918, it finally had a name everyone could agree on, the Air Service, then a part of the National Army. Part of its formation in France was due to the efforts of one Colonel William Billy Mitchell, U.S. Army Aviation. Mitchell then in his late 30s and a career army officer, was stationed in Spain on an observation mission when the U.S. declared war on Germany. As soon as he heard that the U.S. was in the war, Mitchell popped the proverbial smoke and got himself up to Paris as quickly as possible. There, the worldly and wealthy senator's son from Wisconsin used his forceful personality to set up an aviation headquarters in Paris and determine what would be needed to help win the war. Because Billy, he had ideas. According to James Hudson in Hostile Skies, quote, even though his own concept of air power was still uncertain, he had already concluded that the war could not be won except by indirect pressure, end quote. It is all far more detailed than this, 
But Billy Mitchell subscribed to the ideas of a British Royal Flying Corps Major General named Hugh Trenchard. In sum, Major General Trenchard saw that airplanes could be used for much more than just reconnaissance. They could be used as offensive weapons, especially if they were under one overall command and focused on the concept of strategic bombing, hitting enemy targets deep behind the lines that would ultimately help grind the enemy's war efforts to a halt. Throughout the rest of 1917, And through the titanic clashes of the spring and summer of 1918, the American Air Service went through its growing pains. Pilots learned lessons from their British, French, and Italian instructors. They learned lessons brutally from the Germans, too, either paying in horrific deaths or surviving for the next dogfight. It was during the San Miel battle that Mitchell was able to put some of his ideas to work, and he had hundreds of Allied pilots and planes to work with. By the time the salient was destroyed, most American air service squadrons had seen combat, or at least been introduced to it very quickly. By the time of the Meuse-Argonne, just under two weeks after the San Miel offensive, Chief of the First Army Air Service, and now Brigadier General Mitchell, had some refined plans. The air units were split into three broad groups. Pursuit Aviation bombardment, and observation. The last two can speak for themselves, of course, but pursuit aviation was a newish concept. Pursuit squadrons would focus on attacking German fighter patrols and clearing them from the skies above the front lines. They would also attack enemy observation balloons and shoot them down, thus eliminating the enemy's eyes from on high. Some squadrons would operate at relatively low altitudes, while others would operate at higher altitudes so they could protect the bomber squadrons going deeper behind enemy lines. General Mitchell intended to put some of his ideas and learned strategies to full use on the Meuse-Argonne battlefield. These were seen in a memorandum dated September 16, 1918 from Headquarters First Army and titled Employment of Aviation in Proposed Attack. In the memo, Assistant Chief of Air Service Colonel Robert McCleave wrote down the ideas that his boss had in mind. The memo begins with the following, quote, The employment of aviation in the proposed attack will be divided into four phases. One, preparation. Two, during the artillery preparation. Three, during the attack. Four, exploitation, end quote. The four phases were then provided with a short description. Preparation was described as, quote, absolute secrecy must be maintained prior to the opening of the artillery preparation. Consequently, there will be no increase in aerial activity at this time. Sufficient patrols will be maintained to prevent the enemy's reconnaissance planes penetrating our lines. Bombardment aviation will continue its normal activity. Targets will be furnished from this office. Reconnaissance aviation will secure the maximum information of the enemy without arousing his suspicions. End quote. To this end, the pursuit squadrons of the AEF 1st Army's 1st Pursuit Wing 
would maintain their focus on the area of the new front line created after San Miguel operation, with, quote, normal activity of the sector between Châtillon sur les Côtes and Port Sausseille, end quote. This was a roughly 70-kilometer-wide zone southwest of the French city of Metz, which was the key to the Briere Iron Basin so fiercely defended by the occupying Germans. After the clearing of the San Miguel salient, the Germans thought the Americans' next target would be Metz, as that would be the next logical step in their offensive actions. American aero squadrons kept up the fiction that this was the case, and air combat in this area was described as, quote, exceptionally severe and persistent, end quote. For phases two and three, the orders were the same, quote, Pursuit aviation will attack concentrations of enemy troops, convoys, enemy aviation, and balloons. Day bombardment aviation will attack enemy concentrations, convoys, stations, command posts, and dumps in a zone between approximately 10 and 30 kilometers back of the lines. Night bombardment aviation will attack railroad centers, enemy aerodromes, troop concentrations, and dumps. Reconnaissance aviation will carry out its usual missions, army squadrons paying particular attention to locating the arrival of reserves, end quote. For the final exploitation phase, the orders were, quote, as dictated by the progress of the attack and situation at the time, end quote. Once the Merz-Argonne offensive kicked off, Mitchell envisioned his first pursuit wing sending German balloons and fighters to the ground in flames, thus clearing the front line of enemy air cover in lower altitudes. The second and third pursuit groups would fly up higher, clearing the upper skies of enemy planes and clearing the sky paths for the bombers. Second and third pursuit planes, the French SPAD fighter would carry extra 25-pound bombs to drop on enemy infantry targets of opportunity. The first day bombardment group would come in with pursuit squadron protection to bomb towns seen as traffic hubs. These towns and villages were romagne sur montfaucon Saint-Juvent, Grandpré, Bonteville, and the Ducon village part of Dunsermeuse. The Army Observation Group, made up of the 9th, 24th, and 91st squadrons, would be responsible for pretty much the entire 1st Army sector. The 24th and 91st would conduct visual observation during the day. The 9th Squadron would be up at night, reconning the battlefields and dropping bombs on targets of opportunity. Just take a moment to think of how all of this was to be done. In flimsy machines made of wood, wires, and glorified bicycle tires. Yeah, I, I know they're not really that simple, but World War I era aircraft folks, I mean, the flyers who got into them were just incredibly brave souls. To us today, 105 years after the end of World War I, none of this sounds very impressive. But if we put ourselves in the world of September 1918, these were some pretty radical concepts. 
The results, however, were mixed. The Meuse-Argonne campaign, as we know, saw rain on 43 of its 47 days. On some days, the observation planes were up despite the rain, taking photographs of critical areas needed by First Army. But even this meant they only flew a total of 10 days out of those 47. However, they worked to provide the needed information. On October 15th, Lieutenants George Goldthwaite, the pilot, and Spessard Holland, the observer gunner, were sent in their Samson 2A2 biplane to find a large body of German troops on the move. Lieutenant Holland, later in life a Florida governor and senator, recalled that particular mission. His recounting comes from Hudson's hostile skies. Quote, We crossed the right wing of our first army over the 17th French Corps and then went from east to west about halfway along our army front and perhaps one to three miles north of same at a very low level because of the heavy clouds. At that point, the heavy shift of air blew my goggles and headgear off and we turned out. I readjusted my equipment and we came back in and went almost to the west wing of the first army where we discovered a large force of German infantry and artillery resting in some fields back of a high hill near or in the Bois de Bonteville. We turned to move out but were immediately hit by many bursts of machine gun fire. Our landing gear was shot away and the gas tank was hit and the gas poured out all over the pilot into his cockpit so that coming down we barely got over our front line and crash landed about four or five hundred yards back of the front from which place we made our escape while the Germans were trying to get on us with drum fire and also by 77s, end quote. Observation squadrons also engaged the enemy when given the chance. For a pilot to be able to gain the coveted ace status, he had to have five confirmed kills. This would be the age of Eddie Rickenbacker and Frank Luke, two men who at the very least need an entire episode dedicated just to them, and they will get it in the future. Army Observation Group air crews would account for some 26 enemy planes throughout the Meuse-Argonne, with the 91st Squadron taking the lion's share of these, with 17 credited to it. The squadron commander, Captain Everett Cook, earned ace status with five aerial victories. Lieutenant Victor Strom also earned his ace with five kills. Two observers also reached ace status. As far as bombing well behind the front lines, this was a limited success as well. The first day bombardment group was out and in the clouds on September 26th, flying deep behind the German lines. The target for that day of the American attack was the Dulcon area of Dunsermeuse, a town about 30 kilometers northwest of Verdun. From Hudson's hostile skies, we learn just what a World War I bombing run was like. Quote, During the morning, all three squadrons bombed Dunsermeuse, about 25 miles northwest of Verdun. A total of four and one-half tons of bombs were dropped on the railway center and a railway bridge spanning the Meuse just west of the town. 
As the bombers left the target, the lead flight of six brigades from the 96th Aero Squadron was hit by a dozen enemy pursuit planes. Although one observer, Lieutenant P.J. O'Donnell, was killed, the flight managed to shoot down two of the attackers and make its escape. The second flight of bombers was saved by the timely arrival of a flight of SPADs from the 3rd Pursuit Group. Eight DH-4s from the 20th Squadron bringing up the rear of the group formation met disaster. This flight, led by Lieutenant Sidney Coe Howard, was just approaching the Dunsermeuse target area when it was intercepted by approximately a score of Fultz and Fokker fighters. Howard's observer, Lieutenant E.A. Parrott, was hit by the first shower of shots from the attacking machines and fell, jamming the controls of the DH-4, thereby making a turn impossible. With Howard fighting his forward guns and struggling to free the controls, the de Havilland droned on deeper into enemy territory, with the remnants of the shattered flights following in close formation. Finally, after 35 minutes of utmost effort, the perspiring pilot managed to release the controls and turned back toward Allied lines. Hoping that Parrot might still be alive, Howard landed at the first available aerodrome only to find that the observer had been killed instantly. Five of the eight DH-4s failed to return from the disastrous mission. Three were seen to go down in flames, and sometime later it was learned that Lieutenants Richard P. Matthews, Everett A. Taylor, David B. Harris, Earl Forbes, Philip Rhinelander and Harry Preston had been killed, while Lieutenants Marion C. Cooper, E.C. Leonard, Guy Brown Weiser, and G.R. Richardson had been captured. During the long flight, one enemy pursuit plane was shot down by the squadron. For his valiant attempt to save his formation, Sidney Howard was recommended for the DSC. End quote. While this was an expensive episode, American aviation officers devised plans to use the bombers to draw German pursuit fighters away from their front lines. With the bombers going deep behind enemy-occupied territory to bomb soft targets, fighters would have to turn their attention away from the advancing American ground army. General Mitchell ordered bombing runs on Romagna Sumon Facon and Dun sur Merza in the first days of the Merzargon push to keep German fighters from strafing the horrific American traffic jam south of Montfaucon. The bombing squadrons flying the robust de Havilland DH 4s would also give battle. They flew in tight formations for safety with increasingly skilled observer gunners blasting out a stream of bullets when an enemy fighter made himself a target. Bombing, though, demonstrated what aircraft could do. On October 1st, the first day bombardment group dropped over 1,200 kilos of explosives on the village of Banteville, north of Romagna. It was reported that there was significant, quote, damage in the town, end quote. Three days later, first day bombardment became embroiled in a mass dogfight over the village of Londres Saint-Georges when their bomb run attracted some 30 German fighter planes. Pilots from the American 2nd Pursuit Group, seeing the fight, flew straight into it. 
members of the American 96th Squadron were confirmed to have shot down two Germans, and there were claims of 11 other enemy planes going down. Portents of the future abounded. On October 9th, after receiving intelligence that there was a growing body of German soldiers in the area between Donvier and Wavrio villages behind the Meurs Heights, Mitchell acted. Expecting the Germans to launch a counterattack against the American efforts to clear the Meurs Heights and perhaps cross the Meurs itself, Mitchell took matters into his own hands. Calling up more than 200 bombers, over 100 fighters and other aircraft from Allied air units in the area, he assembled a fleet of over 300 aircraft. None of these squadrons were American. Some 30 tons of bombs were then dropped on the concentration area, breaking up the attack. Mitchell, after making sure then First Army Commander General John Pershing and his staff watched the hundreds of planes buzz on towards the enemy, he noted that this was, quote, the dawn of the day when great air forces will be capable of definitely affecting a ground decision on the field of battle, end quote. However, Brigadier General Hugh Drum, AEF First Army's Chief of Staff, wrote that, quote, while our big flight was in the air as if on parade, German airplanes were over our front lines, bombing and machine-gunning our infantry with serious effect on their morale, end quote. In his book, To Conquer Hell, Dr. Ed Langle is also skeptical of Mitchell's abilities. Of Mitchell, Langle writes that, quote, of all the AEF's service commanders, Brigadier General Billy Mitchell was the most forward-thinking creative, and, ironically, resistant to change, end quote. Of the October 9th air raid that Mitchell made sure Pershing and his staff saw, Lengel wrote that, quote, In reality, Galvitz had neither the infantry reserves nor the boats or bridging equipment to launch any kind of attack across the Meuse, end quote. Time and again, German planes dove towards American doughboys on the front line, as we've seen in previous episodes, machine-gunning troops in the open and directing punishing artillery fires on anyone not wearing field gray. Mitchell and folks who took his side, like Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, claimed that there weren't many German airplanes left. The planes the doughboys saw were American planes, and so doughboys definitely needed more instruction on recognizing friendly and unfriendly aircraft. But, as Dr. Lengel asks, quote, if all those planes were American, then why were they machine gunning and dropping grenades on their own troops and dropping signal flares in the vicinity of U.S. infantry and artillery, end quote. American pursuit squadrons couldn't seem to stop the Germans from strafing doughboys on the ground despite the upbeat picture painted in Maurer Maurer's two-volume history titled The U.S. Air Service in World War I. Many American infantrymen claimed that German pilots flew with impunity, with never an American plane to be seen when doughboys were being chopped up by enemy pilots. Dr. Lengel argues that Mitchell's intensive focus on strategic and tactical bombing took his eyes off the also all-important task 
of close air support for the advancing infantry. For much of the American offensive, Langle writes, quote, the Germans controlled the air above the Meuse-Argonne for almost the entire battle, end quote. The role of aircraft in combat in World War I was just beginning to coalesce in the final months of the conflict, and what grew from there has become the standard air power doctrine and use we know today. The massive air bombing campaigns of the Second World War had their origins in pilots and DH-4s, brigades, and capronis dropping 25-pound bombs from their flimsy wings. There is much more to be told about American aviators, their exploits, and their experiences, but we are going to push on. Next episode, we go back down to ground level, where, I'm sure you can tell, I'm much more comfortable, and look at Lieutenant General Liggett's shaping operations in the latter weeks of October 1918. As he trained his troops and readied them for the next big strike, he continued probing and seizing local objectives needed to make sure they succeeded. It will be a while as I'm headed off to France for another epic trip, but next time we'll get back with the doughboys in the mud and rain. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.